Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. This is this is almost kind of part two of a very, very well-received uh, episode that I did a few weeks back with the great Bob Burnham. Bob was talking to me about the after-action reports uh, that he had found along with uh, Moises, his uh, colleague out in Portugal, as they were trying to unpick this new treasure trove of material that they found in the Portuguese archive that shows you kind of really how the Portuguese regiments fought and gives a really, really fresh, valuable insight into the nature of the Portuguese army and its fighting ability. At the time, Bob dropped a little bit of a teaser, which was that there is uh, a whole kind of section of the book and there's a whole kind of treasure trove of information about the British officers in the force. I decided that we were gonna make that a separate episode because it needed to be looked at in its own right. Um, Quick disclaimer, this episode is recorded well in advance of when it goes out. but this will probably be out around about the time that I do my PhD Viva. So if this ends up being the last Napoleonicist episode, you will know that is because I have failed my Viva and I've decided to, I don't know, send myself into exile on St. Helena where I will live in a cave as a goat herd or something and you shall never see with me again. Um, So if this is the last Napoleonist episode, it's been nice knowing you all folks. Um, but time will tell as to whether or not that ends up being the case. Back to the present. Bob, welcome back. Great to see you again. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. It's good to be back here. And I'll be the first to say I'm quite sure that you will pass your uh, advisor or whatever they call it with flying colors. And we will soon be addressing you as Dr. Zach White. Well, that's very generous of you. Um, I wish I shared that kind of confidence, but we shall see. We shall see. Um, let's let's dive in. Where to begin? There's an obvious point with this, isn't there? Why? 
why is it that these British officers are needed in the Portuguese army? And why, equally interestingly, is it felt by these officers that there's an advantage to going over to the Portuguese force? What's the just kind of layout for us, the thinking behind it all? Okay, well, let's start with a little bit of history. In 1807, uh, most of you will know that uh, the French invaded Portugal and they disbanded the Portuguese army. They took the cream of the officers and soldiers and formed a, what was known as the Portuguese Legion and sent them off to Central Europe. And they eventually fought in uh, Russia in 1812 and uh, didn't survive the cold very well. And pretty much by 1813, those who were in the Legion uh, no longer existed. Uh, but what happened then, there was no army in Portugal other than the French army. And in August of 1808, the British uh, invaded in an attempt to liberate Portugal, which they did quite successfully, kicked the French out by December of 1808 and installed a new government. And the government realized they had to form a new army. Unfortunately, all the units had been disbanded, all the recruiting uh, institutions and uh, conscription methods were gone. There was, and so they had to start from scratch. And they started doing a fairly good job, but by the beginning of 1809, they realized that they couldn't do it on their own. They needed to bring uh, an outside force into, into the country to modernize the army, starting at the very top. And they selected or went to the British uh, government and said, do you have an officer who's qualified to uh, serve as our commander in chief of the Portuguese army? And the British government said, yeah, we'll do that. And they approached an individual, as most will know, William Carr Beresford, who actually had served in Portugal at the beginning of 1800-1801, had worked with the Portuguese army and even spoke a bit of Portuguese. He immediately said, no, I don't want to do it. Uh, find someone else. Uh, and the British government basically said, you either do it or retire. Uh, and he said, okay, I'll do it. In March of 1809, he wanted to uh, in Lisbon, start setting up uh, headquarters, and he realized he couldn't do it on his own. He had to bring in uh, help because he wanted to train the, the Portuguese army in the British method of fighting a war. From the very top, from the staff, command and control, uh, he also wanted to teach him British drill and do such things instead of fighting in a three-rank line, fight in a two-rank rank line, things along those lines. And he realized he needed help. So he went back to the government and said, can you second some British officers uh, uh, to the Portuguese? And his goal was he was wanted to, in addition to many staff officers, he wanted to have a British officer commanding either every regiment, infantry and cavalry regiment, or as a second in command, second senior officer in the regiment, if there was a Portuguese officer who was uh, trained enough and qualified enough to command the regiment, then this second in command would be the British officer. Uh, these, uh, if you do the numbers, he realized he uh, would need about 200 
officers to fill the ranks, to, to fill this. And another, that's just to fill the command position, federal. Uh, that didn't include the staff officers, and that would be another 40 or 50 staff officers. So you're talking, he needed approximately 250 officers. Of course, the question is, where did it uh, get it? Where did he get them from? Did, you know, was there problems find them? And I would have thought, yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to go and work with the, another army and basically get out of the army. But surprising, he didn't have any problems. Uh, the officers uh, were lining up, volunteering to join, uh, especially at the company and field grade officers. However, where he had the problems was finding suitable senior officers. And this was not a problem just for the Portuguese army. Wellington had the same problem, uh, finding suitable officers, uh, the commanders, brigades, divisions, and eventually even the corps level, uh, even though they weren't called corps. Uh, and it wasn't until about 1812 where Wellington was happy about the quality of the officers he was getting to, uh, at the general officer level. Well, in 1809, Beresford's casting around looking for senior officers to command, and some were very good, a lot of them were not. Uh, so the call for volunteers went out, and the duty was, the positions were open to all officer volunteers, but with two caveats. Army regulations prohibited more than two captains and two subalterns from a regiment from serving in a staff position outside of the regiment. Now, whether service with the Portuguese army was considered a staff position is not known, but this guidance was generally qualified. And what do I mean by a staff position? You always hear about some bright young buck who's gonna be, who has connections, he's gonna go be a aide-de-camp or uh, go serve on as a, in the adjutant general's department or the quartermaster general's department. And, and there were quite a few, especially among the guards regiments. Uh, but there were not as many as it appear to be. Uh, because uh, you know, I said there was two caveats. Uh, second one was that army regulations prohibited an officer from serving on the staff unless he had a minimum of four years active service. And this restriction was also generally qualified. And so if up to four officers requesting to do duty outside of the regiment, he could not stop them from doing that if the army required it. However, if more than four wanted to, he could say, no, I'm not gonna let you go until Jones or Smith returned from this duty. And this makes a lot of sense because if you take the cream of the crop out of your regiment, uh, you're gonna start having problems. Uh, so, if they volunteer for the Portuguese service, does that mean that they have to resign their commission in the British service, or can they ride both horses, as it were? Because it, the whole thing for officers in this period is about all about seniority and purchase of commissions, right? And they're kind of playing this game of transferring from one regiment to another to bump their way up the kind of the rankings of the promotion ladder, so that they can then buy the next step in their promotion. So, you know, you you end up buying your, your captain number one, if you like, the, the highest, the most senior captain's position in, in the rank. And then when 
the majority position, the major uh, above you dies or transfers to another unit, you can then get bumped up to at major if you if you have the funds available and it's, it's a very complex game so are they trying to do both things are they trying to sort of stay in the british system and, and gain their seniority um in the british officer corps whilst also being in the portuguese or do they have to resign the commission in the british army and go all in for the portuguese service uh, i'm going to uh, give that a qualified yes uh they first you need to understand the promotion system in the British Army. There was two types of ranks. Everyone started out with regimental rank. And regimental rank is was yours unless you messed up badly and got course marshaled or cashiered. They could, they could place you on half pay, but it was yours forever. They didn't necessarily have to allow you to advance, but they couldn't throw you out. Okay. Then you had army rank. Army rank is also known as brevet rank. If you're serving in a position outside of your regiment that calls for, let's say your captain in position calls for a major, you will become a major in the army system. And you can get promoted from major all the way up to general in the army system, or army rank system, and still have your regimental rank. However, you only are holding that rank as long as you're in the position that calls for it. For example, if you're uh, in the army, the adjutant general's office, uh, part of Wellington's headquarters, then may call for lieutenant colonel and you're a major in your regiment and you get selected for that position, you're now a lieutenant colonel in the army, but only a major in the, your regiment. And you do receive uh, lieutenant colonel pay plus all the staff uh, pay that goes with it. If you leave that job and you go back to your regiment, you revert back to major. So you would always, in most cases, they would call you by whatever your highest rank was in either system. Uh, so if you join the Portuguese army, you still retain your regimental rank. However, there was one caveat. There was, it's known as employed on a particular service. Uh, people sometimes think it was uh, the peace for Portuguese service. And initially in 1809, the army said, okay, we will support Beresford and we will call these officers EOPS officers. And they selected 24 officers to serve in both the Portuguese and the Spanish army. 21 would go to the Portuguese army, three would go to the Spanish army. They were immediately promoted. If you were a captain in the regimental rank, you were immediately promoted to major in the, uh, the British Army rank. And then you were promoted to lieutenant colonel in the Portuguese rank. So an increase of two ranks um, uh, promotion for the officer. The caveat, though, on it is if by agreeing for this increase in rank and in army rank, they had to resign the regimental commission. Now, they so these 21 officers gave up, some of them were majors uh, who gave it up and became a lieutenant colonel in the army, uh, British army. So uh, most of them were captains and they became majors. They gave up the regimental rank. And when they got back, came out of Portuguese service, 
unless they found a job within the army structure on the staff someplace, they would go on half pay. They would be forced to retire and be unemployed. That happened about half, half the officers by the end of the war, that happened to them. But most of them were able to find jobs or exchange their half pay uh, army rank for uh, regimental active rank. Uh, so it depended on the system. Now, by joining the Portuguese army, uh, there was two advantages. The first is they immediately became one rank higher and they got to draw both British and Portuguese pay. So they got a fairly high pay increase to do uh, by doing so. Uh, so they had a lot of volunteers. Uh, people realized this is a good deal. Uh, I'm not going to be funny. I'd volunteer. <laughs> that yeah. sounds, sounds pretty and, good getting two wages to me. But you're, the downside of it, though, is you are going into a totally, completely different army out of your comfort of your regiment. And you're not going to have the regimental support there that you would have if you stayed in the regiment. But they found the volunteers. And I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, we, uh, in the third and 11th foot, had 10 officers uh, each who served, uh, not simultaneously. Though at one time, uh, uh, each had six officers serving with, uh, with the Portuguese. And that's not counting uh, those who were serving on the staff elsewhere. So that they must have either had a very lenient uh, colonel or they somehow slipped through the uh, ranks. This 39th foot had six servants uh, simultaneous out of the eight who had served in the Portuguese army. And the 71st uh, foot had seven volunteers, the most prominent being Dennis Pack, who I've mentioned in other episodes. And six of them were with the Portuguese at the same time. The, there were many volunteers and the officers who were selected came from 84 different infantry regiments and 14 cavalry regiments as well as six from the Royal Artillery. Interestingly, no officers came from the King's German Legion or were allowed to join. However, four were from its artillery component, the King's German Artillery. No engineer officers served, but uh, 14 medical officers served in various positions over the years. Do we know why there are no KGL uh, officers who sign up? No idea. Uh, I think they were having trouble finding enough officers to fill the ranks anyway. Uh, That's true. At a point that if you look at who served in the KGL, the longer they served, I think they were getting more and more English officers uh, going in rather than being purely uh, uh, German officers. And probably the, one of the most famous uh, memoirs that came out of the KGL units was by uh, Dennis Wheatley, who was a uh, went in as an incident and it was definitely British. So yes. So the system worked. It uh, a little convoluted, but they did were able to find enough volunteers. The they also asked for NCOs to volunteer. And they I'm went glad out you've raised this, yes, because this is an important one, isn't it? Talk us through yeah. this. And also, you know, does this work? Because what's very curious is that Wellington doesn't believe in this, does he? He kind of sees this cultural divide between the rank and file 
and, and the NCOs and the officer corps. And when he's asked about this idea of promoting NCOs up from the ranks, he kind of says, look, they can't do it because the officers mess is an environment where you're expected to spend money, um, where you're expected to be able to kind of conduct yourself to a particular social standard. And he doesn't believe that the uh, NCOs can kind of manage. And so he says, well, look, most of them, most of them end up going off and um, descending into drunkenness or they end up selling their, their commissions because they just can't hack it. So does this work in the Portuguese service? Uh, yes. Uh, they were, we were able to identify 11 NCOs who were one into Portuguese service. Out of 375, you know, that's probably uh, 3% total. What they did is Beresford said, okay, it's fine bringing in all these officers, but we also need someone who knows how to manage a regiment or a battalion, just drill, uh, doing the paperwork. And so they brought in senior NCOs, usually sergeant majors, and they became adjutants for regiments uh, or uh, several of them stayed back in the re recruiting depots and they ran uh, the administrative side of the recruiting uh, depots. Uh, that's in a study itself. Uh, problem is, is identifying. There were probably more than 11, but the only ones I, I could have actually identified by name, there was 11 of them. So uh, interesting, as the war went on, the need for recruits or volunteers dropped because the Portuguese were uh, getting better and better. And we saw a number of officers who were volunteers who could not, they were not commissioned in the British army initially. And while they were waiting for the commissions to go through, they joined the Portuguese army. And then when they were in the Portuguese army, their commission in the British army came through. Uh, and they, you know, the, I don't think they ever got above the rank of lieutenant in the Portuguese army. And I'm not sure how much they could actually contribute to the Portuguese army since they were basically uh, new, uh, they were not very experienced. But there were a handful of them we were able to identify. And the way we could do that is we found the data rank of their commissioning in the Portuguese army was several months earlier than the data rank of commissioning in the British army. Otherwise, they would have said, oh, well, this guy did not do very well because he ended up uh, leaving the army as, or uh, lieutenant the Portuguese army, never got any higher. Uh, total number though was interesting. We think, I said they needed about 200 to 250. We were able to identify 376 uh, who served. And by the end of the war, there was close to 200 still on working in the Portuguese army. The largest number, not surprising, were, were 172 lieutenants who volunteered, 73 captains, 33 majors, 22 lieutenant colonels, six colonels, one brigadier general, and one lieutenant general. And of course, the lieutenant general was Beresford himself. Yeah. So, uh, and most of them did quite well by the time they were done. This is really interesting. Um, there's, there's so much that we've covered sort of there already that I'm going to kind of almost skip to the end, if you will, of this story and just ask about losses and kind of attrition um, and, and also the way in which they replace those losses. Um, so what is, in inverted commas, the butcher's bill? 
but also well, you were talking about um you know the the need to obviously you know find more officers and bring in more volunteers with time because that's the nature of war you you lose your officers as you lose your men um but do they do the portuguese start to rely more on sort of homegrown talent as it were and start promoting more men within their regiments as these units become veteran battalions and and gain in confidence and experience well you have about five questions here so let me this start with the first one let's talk about the losses uh they paid a heavy loss uh, uh we were of the 376 officers that we could identify 169 of them or 45 percent were became casualties which is a pretty high price to pay. 44 were killed in action or died of wounds, which was 12% uh, of the total. And another 17 or 4% died of illness, disease, or exhaustion. So if you add it together, you had a, basically a one in six chance of dying or a 50% chance of being wounded. This now, if you look at from the there was a major study done probably a hundred years ago on looking at the casualties among British officers in the peninsula. And well, actually overall uh, in the British army at the time, uh, they had serving in the peninsula, 40% chance of becoming a casualty, a 6% chance of being killed or dying from wounds, 29% chance of being wounded and a 4% chance of dying from these disease and illness. So that 4% died from disease or illness, didn't matter if you were, where you were, disease, uh, sure. Portuguese or British Army. Uh, the one I found, it, the di major difference was di uh, uh, dying from wounds, uh, which it was a six, about a 6% uh, for just serving in the British Army, but it was 12% uh, if you were in the Portuguese army. And I think that it could be two things that contributed. One was the, the officers would all, generally ran, led from the front, but I think the British officers and Portuguese armies had to actually do that more often to motivate the men. Another thing I think that probably the medical care was not as good. So if you got wounded, the chances of surviving a major wound was probably less than if you were under the British care. The other thing was uh, you had a chance being uh, wounded or captured. Most of those uh, captured were wounded at the time. The other thing, and I don't have an exact number on this, but a lot of them returned home. Yeah, they survived the war, they survived the wounds, they survived the sickness, but they paid for it later on in life. And I think that by the they had a shorter life expectancy in the end, just uh, because they didn't get the same quality of food at the time as the, they would have been in the army, with the British Army. Uh, they have, the health care was not as good. And so, you know, you paid in. I think if you look at the, it, for the officers who served even in the British Army, they get back and look at it compared to their civilian counterpart. And I think they, probably had issues too. And that's still a modern day problem. Uh, the veterans come back with a face a lot of other issues that your typical 
uh, civilian that hadn't served uh, never have to face. But that's for another study that could be very interesting. Now, I hate to say this, what was your other questions? Uh, so the other one was about kind of promotion of, if you like, inverted commas, homegrown talent. So within Portuguese regiments, do you in time find more of a focus on promoting Portuguese NCOs, for example, or focusing on the recruitment and promotion of Portuguese officers rather than relying on British? They did, but again, the best, what they considered the best officers in the Portuguese army were drafted into French service. And I used to probably conscript it, might be another, you know, uh, someone voluntarily, a lot of them were told they had to go. And when they got there, some never made it to France, they deserted first opportunity. Uh, so the, what was considered the cream of crop was cut off the top. And then you had the system itself when they stood up the army, a lot of people came back to the flags, but you were, you had senior off, uh, officers who were geriatric to be nice. Uh, and there was also a homegrown uh, movement, especially up in Oporto where units were raised before, well, they kicked the French out. And what do you do with those officers? Uh, and so they had to integrate them. Initially, about 80% of the commands went to the British just because they couldn't, the Portuguese, it was a very static system where promotions were slow and you could be 20 years as a lieutenant before you got promoted to captain and your regimental commanders could be 50 or 60 years old. Not the type you wanna have command in, in the field. So by 18, uh, 11, about 80% of all commands were given to British officers. As I said, uh, Beresford had trouble finding um, qualified people to serve at the higher ranks, especially at brigade level. Uh, as I mentioned, the Portuguese officers are too old, but this was a problem that uh, Wellington had too for his own brigades. And so you saw in 1809, 1810, 1811, about half the brigade commanders were replaced uh, by 1812. In 1812, 70% uh, of the brigade were commanded by British officers. However, this was the proofs before. So there were some uh, Portuguese officers who were recognized as being competent and they were brought into command. However, in 1813, uh, 1813, 16 of uh, the regimental, oh, I jumped ahead. 1813, the number of brigade commanders commanded by British was at 80%. 1814, it dropped to 70%. So you can see that the more and more uh, commands were given to uh, Portuguese officers. You had the Portuguese division, which was commanded off and on, sometimes by Portuguese officers, sometimes by a British officer. At the regimental level, in 1810, 11 of the 24 regiments were commanded by the British commander. However, 1811, it was up to 12, so that's 50%. 1812, 13 were at British commanders. And by 1813, this number increased to 16. So you're talking two thirds of the infantry regiments were commanded by British. However, by 1814, uh, it was down to 12. 
So 50% were commanded by British. Between 1809, 1814, 38 uh, British officers command, had commanded an infantry regiment. So they were being run through the system. Some were promoted to uh, brigade command. Some were uh, removed from service because they didn't cut the mustard. And some were uh, became casualties or left for another reason. Uh, it was the same for the Kakadori battalions. Uh, However, 1812, 11 of the 12 Kakadori commanders were British, and by 1814, it was down to six. So slowly but surely, the Portuguese were filling the staff positions. Uh, but they had to be trained, they had to be identified and trained, and it took a while. And the same for the British. Some of them succeeded, some of them did not. Yeah, there's a certain logic to all of that, isn't there? What I also just really admire is that I fire these questions at you just as they pop into my head. And you're just like, yeah, I can handle that. You know, I, I just happened, I happen to have the access to those figures. This is the capacity of some of the researchers of this period um, and some of the guests that we have on this podcast that just blows my mind when, when we have people like yourself who can just take any question that I fire at them and go, yeah, I, I have loads of detailed information that I can just pluck out of the air on that. It's incredible. Um, Let's I'd like to bring up something uh, that we kind of skipped over. And for, for me, what was considered the primary reason why a British officer wanted to join. Uh, many years ago, I joined the Army right out of high school for fun travel and adventure. Just, I had the scholarship to the university. And I said, I don't want to go to the university. And I joined the Army and for that. That was one of the reasons. But another reason directly related was opportunity. These officers saw a chance that they could do things that would never uh, have the chance to do it before. And I'll give you two examples uh, that why they did it. Uh, the first was uh, John McDonald, who we're going to talk about before. He was a lieutenant and was so, uh, in the 88th Fourth and was selected to become a volunteer officer. He was immediately commissioned a captain in the Portuguese Army and in the 2nd Infantry Division in March 1809. So he was one of the first officers who was not, well, I mentioned the EOPS officers. He was one of the first who was not an EOPS officer who joined the Portuguese Army. He was promoted to major in November of 1809. So if he had been in his regiment, he would still be a lieutenant. And now he's a major, commanded a battalion in the Portuguese Army. And before he wouldn't even been considered to the command of company. He led this uh, battalion at Bissaco, Medina, Campo Mayor, first siege of Badajoz, Albuera. And then on the 14th, uh, in March of 1812, he was transferred to the 14th Infantry. In April, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel in it and given command of the regiment. This is in 1812. Three years ago, or two and a half years before, he was a, a, a lieutenant. He led it in the campaign all throughout the 1812 campaign. In 1813, uh, we're finally at, at Banca in the Pyrenees. He was severely wounded and uh, basically was uh, hospitalized. However, in 1814, he was given temporary command of the Portuguese Brigade. Okay, and said, okay, that's pretty good. They had two, and he commanded it to lose. He was only 26 years old at the time. It was a brigade commander. Yeah. No way. 
Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm yeah. feeling horrifically old now at the not so ripe old age of uh, 29. <laughs> I've not quite seen my God, you're old. <laughs> but however, if he had not joined the Portuguese army, he would have been a captain, still a captain in 88 foot. And there were, he would be junior to eight other captains. So the chances of them even making mayor were slim to none. And commanding a regiment, no less a brigade, no, no way. However, that's not the most famous uh, of the individuals. Uh, you may have heard of uh, Captain Alexander Dickinson or Dixon of the Royal Artillery. He was commissioned a major in the Portuguese army in 1809 and immediately given command of the equivalent of three Portuguese artillery batteries, or what they were called brigades. They led them throughout the war at sieges, including at Cudad Rodrigo. He was pr pr promoted to Lieutenant Colonel of the Portuguese Army on 12, 24 March, 1812. He led the Portuguese artillery at Almarez, Salamanca Forts, Salamanca and Burgos. And during the campaigns of 1813 and 1814, even though he was only a captain in the British Army, he was lieutenant colonel in the Portuguese army. He was chief of Wellington's ar artillery. He had over 200 guns under his uh, command or control. He resigned his commission in October, 1814. And upon returning to commission in the Portuguese army, and upon, upon returning to England, none of this mattered. The fact that he commanded 200 uh, guns in, at Victoria, no, they didn't care. He reverted back to his rural, rural artillery rank of captain, which was not senior enough to command of that uh, uh, company or brigade, uh, artillery brigade. And he didn't make major in the British Army until 1823. He did end up being uh, uh, retired as a major general. He stayed in long enough. But so here's a chance. I mean, and he took it. Uh, he, he was the senior artillery officer in Wellington's army by the time the war was over. And yet, if he had stayed in, he might have commanded uh, artillery brigade uh, as a revit major or even just as a captain. So opportunity. And I don't think you can uh, emphasize that enough when you're looking at chances. Because you brought it up at the very beginning. Everyone's trying to uh, gain promotion at whatever means they can. And well, it worked for him. And John McDonald, when he went back, he was still a captain. But uh, he, at one point, he was led his brigade at, uh, in battle, which not too many lieutenants could say that. The Dixon, the Dixon manuscripts are fascinating. If anybody is ever able to turn up uh, a copy, they were published by Ken Trotman many years ago. And it's fascinating to read them on two levels because what you've got are sort of his, uh, a number of, not all of, but a number of his private <coughs> letters alongside his official ones. And just kind of watching his career, this is a guy with an incredible attention to detail. You can see why he ends up as commander of, of Wellington's artillery because he's got this almost kind of Wellingtonian attention to detail. But at the same time, as he kind of makes his way up the ranks, he gets private letters from people saying, you've changed, they're, they're doing the, the equivalent of going, you've changed, man, you used to be cool. 
and yeah. um, and he's basically become more and more formal with them. And they're sort of going, well, why are you being so formal with me? Because he's kind of embracing this um, almost meteoric rise that he enjoys. Um, yeah, two fascinating examples. It, his uh, letters or the manuscripts are amazing. He was a pack rat. He never threw anything out, including uh, letters that he wrote, letters he received. He, there's diaries in it from other officers yeah. and also his own personal journal. And he'd sit there, oh, we were in this village, it can hold 300 people. Or we went to this uh, village and now it can only hold 50 people. The fodder's not good enough to, uh, for, for our draft animals. So that attention to detail, as you pointed out, incredible. And it's rare to find that in any set of memoirs. But he, they are there. And I can see why he got promoted. So anyway, that is, <coughs> I think, the primary reason by, why people uh, joined. They, it was an opportunity to get promoted, and it paid off. What happens at the end then? What happens to 1814? Do some stay? Well, presumably some must stay, but you know, what, what's the reason for them choosing to do that? Give us numbers, give us reasons, do the thing that you do so well, enlighten us. Well, good question. Uh, the war ends and you think, well, there's why does it's need for them to go home? But they didn't. Uh, the let me find my notes again. The they were allowed to stay in the army. Uh, many resigned the commissions and rejoined the regiments. However, after when the war ended. The British officers continued to be promoted, especially at the general officer and field grade level. So why do I want to go back and be yeah, major or captain when I could be a big fish in a small pond? I could be a, a colonel or even a brigadier general in the Portuguese army. In 1815, there were two British major generals and seven brigadier generals, or 20% of all generals in the Portuguese service were British. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of the 76 British officers who chose to stay at the end of the war, and were at the regimental battalion level, four were, commanding, were colonels commanding infantry regiments and one commanded a cavalry regiment. Eight of the 12 Kakadori battalions were commanded by uh, British uh, lieutenant colonels. However, by December 1816, the British Army said, wait a minute, we've had enough. Uh, we're not going to let you milk the system like uh, you've been doing it. And they gave them a choice. They, two, uh, first one was 
resign from the Portuguese army and come back to your regiment. Or you can continue in the Portuguese army, but they had to trade the regimental commissions for army rank. So if they left the Portuguese army two years later, they'd have they'd be on half pay unless they could find a job. So uh, many of them chose to stay. Uh, by 1818, the number of British generals had increased to one lieutenant general, seven major generals, and six brigadier generals, or 21% of all the generals in the Portuguese army. And there were still 58 officers at the unit level, and most had been promoted. Uh, this caused problems, not for the, the British army or for the, the training, but Initially, when the British armies came in, there was a, they were welcomed uh, wholesale by the Portuguese army officers. Hey, we need to get up to snuff. We need to uh, become more modernized. And they were welcomed and they accepted the fact that all these British officers were the best qualified ones to uh, command the brigades and regiments. However, by 18, 1818, the war had been over for four years. And their attitude changed. They, they perceived there was a preference for British commanders over Portuguese commanders, and there was much resentment uh, by the Portuguese officer corps. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the uh, Portuguese history post uh, uh, the Peninsula War, but in 1820, there was a liberal revolt, 26th August, 1820, which overthrew uh, the uh, the current government, the Portuguese officers supported that wholesale. I mean, and the main reason is they resented the British officers being in all the high uh, positions. New government came, comes in, and first thing they did was they fired all the British officers. Uh, however, a year later, or six months later, the, the government said, okay, that's not really fair to all these British who served faithfully. And they said they can continue to serve, receive pay in the, for being in the Portuguese arm, army equal to the number of years you already did. So if you had been an officer for seven years, uh, then you'd uh, get seven more years of pay. But after that, you'd be fired. Some of them, they were offer, also offered a pension, which would be uh, a third of the pay. And that included Beresford. And they, uh, and then there were several others. There was a civil war, a couple of civil wars in the 1820s, and some of the British officers got involved in the fighting back and forth, supporting the various factions. But the primary cause of, or one of the major causes of the revolt was the fact that in 1820 was British Portuguese officers were tired of the British dominance in uh, Portuguese affairs. So. Uh, it was kind of a sad ending for it, but it didn't surprise me really spit when I read about it. So, no, I I would completely echo that. That no, it's not surprising, but it is a sad end. Let's stay with problems then for a moment. Um, the first thing that springs to mind is language barrier, right? With the best will in the uh, world, most of these these officers won't have been able to converse with members of their rank and files. 
native language. So how big an issue does that end up being? Initially, a very major issue. And there's correspondence from uh, Brigadier General William Cox, who commanded Almeida when it fell to the uh, French in 1810. But he's writing back to Beresford and says, these guys who came to, to uh, command the, and train the troops are good, but they don't speak Portuguese. Uh, part of the problem was solved by, they commissioned quite a few local officers who were of British descent, especially from Oporto, where port wine came from. And some of them were quite famous. Uh, guy named Ware, uh, he, uh, his family was big in the import-export of port from Oporto. And um, he ended up translating all the British drill manuals into Portuguese. And, and he did it fairly quickly. So, you know, by beginning of 1810, they, they were published and out there. And before a, a unit could be certified, combat uh, ready, they were inspected and they had to be able to perform all the different maneuvers uh, as by shown by the manuals. And this was also where the NCOs who commissioned from the ranks and brought over, they were quite often were doing the training on that. So language up and down, they were not given the orders in English. They had to give them Portuguese. They were integrated in the Portuguese army. And I don't think very many of them were uh, fluent enough to write. Uh, orders or anything else, but they could uh, converse in Portuguese. And I think back then people tended to learn languages a little easier than they do today, especially for among the English speakers, because English is kind of the, the common language throughout the world. And, but back then French was, or, and so the cases I have diaries of people who could speak, they're writing, oh, I got to learn Portuguese and taking Portuguese lessons or Spanish lessons. So they got better. Writing, probably not. And I think uh, when we talked about the after action reports uh, in a previous episode, it was pretty determined that the, the after action reports were dictated to a Portuguese officer to put it into proper English, uh, Portuguese uh, style before it went forward. Uh, that was probably initially the biggest problem. But something to keep in mind was Portuguese officers were, well, the British officers in the Portuguese army were subjected to Portuguese discipline, which we can talk about in a couple of minutes. So uh, the, well, let's talk about it now. I've, I've lost my train of thought. The, <laughs> I mean, uh, you turned through the a mention of discipline and on the, so... Uh... Okay, so let's talk about the, uh, the discipline issues. There are cases where uh, officers came over in a while with an attitude saying, hey, I'm British, I know everything. And yeah, even though you higher rank than me, I don't have to listen to yours because I was brought in to be in your army. Uh, most were encouraged to leave. One was uh, basically fired told to leave. So that happened occasionally, not too often. Uh, and then there was uh, criminal complaints. 
there were a few. Uh, we know for sure of one. I mentioned uh, uh, John McDonald, who was a lieutenant colonel of the Portuguese Army, who a 26-year-old commander of the brigade. The day after Toulouse, he was court-martialed for murder. He, yeah, by the Portuguese system, not the British system, but the Portuguese system. We have talked about this before, actually. I can't remember if we did it on air or not. We did not. Bearing in mind um, that this is a radio show, uh, my eyebrows just shot up into my rapidly receding hairline um, because this is a rarity for an officer to be tried for murder. Um, so we need to hear the juicy gossip here. Okay, well, and even rarer, he was tried by a Portuguese court. He Civilian was not court tried. Or military court. Uh, military court. He was given a fair trial, supposedly, uh, and found guilty and was ordered to be strangled, uh, executed by strangulation. Uh, this was not good publicity for either side. And I'm not sure who intervened, but uh, actually, it went up. It was appealed at the highest level and equivalent to their Supreme Court or something. Said no, we can't do this, and they dismissed them from the Portuguese army. Okay, and he had to return back to his, the 88 foot. So he's a captain. He goes back to being a captain of the 88 foot after successfully leading his brigade at Toulouse and wounded and everything else. What the actual charges were, other than murder and the and uh, why and who he killed or anything else, we have no idea. I, I talked to Rory Muir uh, out of Australia, who's kind of my go-to guy on a lot of things. And he goes, he had never heard of a case before of that, but he, he said that he didn't think it would have mattered. It depended on, you know, did he kill his mistress? Did he kill someone else? Uh, and if he had, then probably the British Army his fellow officers said, well, he got what was coming to him then, uh, if he was executed. But we don't really know the details. However, what we do know is after he was um, dismissed from the Portuguese Army, he rejoined his regiment, and it was like it never happened. There was no impact on his career in the British Army, and he retired as a full general about, and I think it was 1846 or something. Uh, so hopefully someday someone's going to discover the records uh, in the Portuguese archives. I wish I could say that any of what you said had surprised me, but this is, uh, it, it's funny you talk about mistresses. Um, it does just have that slight air of one of those cases that, the British particularly might be more inclined to just ignore because of how they deal with crimes against uh, civilian women and just the way in which these things aren't treated with the same level of seriousness. What staggers me is that this case even went to court because in the British system, it just doesn't happen. You don't see, and I'd need to just double check my court martial database to be sure here, apologies folks for the crime and punishment rabbit hole, but this is interesting you just don't see officers tried for murder. You certainly don't ever see an officer being sentenced to death. Um, it's just not done. 
So it's it's really interesting to see that they there's this sort of effort to take it seriously, and then people step back from the brink. It's it's all quite peculiar. Yeah, and it would have been very interesting if they actually executed, mm -hmm. um, and the, to see how they would have the British officers would have reacted to it. And of course, we don't we don't know the details of the case. It might have been he was in a duel, but I can't imagine who would be dueling. And he, you know, because it was the day after Toulouse, the battle was over, uh, and he was arrested. And within a week, he was tried and convicted in order to be executed. Wow. So fortunately for him, he was not. But hopefully, but someday if, someone will find it. But if it had been dueling, they'd have probably called it dueling, or they'd have tried him on two charges. So they might have put him up for murder and for a duel in order to hedge well, their bets. Because by this point, you've got people like Francis Larpent out there. Now, Larpent's an experienced deputy judge, advocate general. He's hired for this purpose because he's a civilian lawyer. So he knows the system. So by the time he's out there in 1812, 1813, making his presence felt, you see Wellington's army effectively getting their act together and dealing with these issues so it's all for and the army has no the british army at least has no issue with charging people for dueling it just finds it impossible to secure a conviction because all of the officers go i i never saw any dueling i, I was just going for a lovely walk um, i've got no idea how this guy ended up with a bullet in his left arm uh, definitely wasn't any case of dueling that i saw but i didn't see anything kind of thing and you get these farcical episodes where cases collapse for lack of evidence because quite literally nobody apparently saw anything it drives some of the, the commanders absolutely potty. Well, the question is, if it wasn't a crime in the Portuguese army, would Wellington have uh, tried to uh, try him or court-martial him in the British army, since he wasn't serving in the British army at the time, though he was an active member of the British army. Uh, so I have no idea. Uh, you know, I will have to take a look at uh, Larkin's letters and see if they mention it at all. I've never thought of looking in there. Uh, should be easier to find out. It was uh, April of eight, uh, 1814. Should have some information in there if it reached that level. So The other one would be the Orders dos Diem, um, because if it was a military court, it would have to be a general court-martial or a Portuguese equivalent, which then in all likelihood would have been reported in the uh, general orders that, that went out, because um, that's just what the British did. And you know, the Portuguese system is a mirror of the British system at this time. So that might be the other place where you get a clue. And in that there, you'll be, get the full charges listed. Yeah, the I'll have to look at that. I do have a copy of those. It was Boises, my co-author, was the one who pointed out the, the information on it. And I, you know, he may have found them in the orders of the day. It was, I just found it a very fascinating case. It, okay, those are your two extremes. One doesn't want to take uh, orders from a Portuguese officer, another one who's convicted of murder. But you know, there was other problems in there, um, discipline problems within the, which, by the British officer serving. And this comes down to question of rank. Uh, who is senior to who? Now, I mentioned earlier at the very beginning that you had regimental rank, you had army rank. Now we throw in a third element. You have Portuguese army rank. So 
I'm an officer, which I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Portuguese army. I was captain in the British in my regiment. And I've been, uh, I'm a brevet major in the British army. Okay. So I've got three different ranks. What happens if I'm serving with a major who's commanding or I'm in a, a task force that has my regiment, Portuguese regiment, but also my, uh, my British regiment. And it was commanded by a Lieutenant Colonel who I am senior to in the Portuguese army, but by regimental rank, I'm not even, he's a Lieutenant Colonel in my regiment, I'm only a captain who has command. This happened, I, not fairly often, but enough that Wellington had to get involved. And can I make a prediction here? Does Wellington go British Army rules okay, and therefore whatever whoever's most senior in the British system ends up in charge? Is is that how it tends to work out? Uh, no. Wow. Wellington was actually uh, very adamant about it. Uh, he said, "Whoever's senior in rank is senior in rank, regardless of what army." Uh, and there was a case. Uh, Two cases I'll bring up. One was a guards officer who uh, was serving on the staff and he was had his uh, army rank and was in a position where he had to give orders to his uh, former battalion commander in the guards who outranked him quite a bit. But he was more senior to the, uh, uh, the guards officer. And Wellington said, no, whoever senior rank, uh, regardless of where he got the rank from, is senior. And the guards officer said, I'm appealing it, and went up to Whitehall, and Whitehall backed uh, Wellington on it. So he was pretty adamant about that. There is a case where, at the general officer level, where it happened more often, uh, George Madden, who, who successfully got his battalion commander or regimental commander court-martial in 1801 and then was forced out of the army for betraying his uh, regimental commander. Even though the regimental commander was found guilty and he testified against them, they said, well, you know, so we suggest you uh, resign your commission. He was brought back in in 1808, he was allowed to restore the rank and said, We'd suggest you go and join the Portuguese army in 1809, 1810. So he was a brigadier general in 1813, commanded a Portuguese brigade in the, I don't remember what division, but he was senior to Dennis Pack. Dennis Pack, this was in 1813. They both got promoted to Portuguese, uh, to brigadier general. Pack got promoted in the British army and resigned his commission in the Portuguese army and uh, took over a British brigade in the same division that uh, Madden was commanding the Portuguese brigade. So now we have a British officer who's extremely competent, commanding a British brigade, who's like a weak junior to the British officer commanding a Portuguese brigade, who's not that Wellington didn't have a lot of faith in. Division commander 
is absent. And they needed to appoint an uh, acting division commander. And Madden said, I'm senior. It needs to be me. Wellington said, you're right. But what he didn't say is, yeah, I'm not sticking you in command of the division. You're, not, you're barely competent as a brigade commander. And he basically relieved Madden as command of the Portuguese brigade and sent it back to Lisbon. So he could uh, give uh, Pack command of the division because he didn't want to take a chance of Madden uh, commanding the brigade or commanding the division. Madden got screwed over technically. Uh, yeah, there's a question. That he was no Pack. He was probably as good as about most of the brigade commanders at the time, but there was nothing he could do. He either put him in division commander or got rid of him. And he said, no, nope, I'm not taking a chance. We're getting rid of him. So throughout the war, Wellington had to manage and stroke the egos of all these different senior commanders saying, okay, yeah, yeah, you are the senior commander of this brigade, but you know, and you're senior brigade commander in this division. However, you got, for example, the light division, who was commanded by a brigadier general. Yeah, you're senior to him, but I'm not giving you command of the division because you're not that good of a commander. They didn't say that to him. And so he's always trying to manage his people to get the right person at the right time within the structure of the two armies. And it was difficult enough to do it with the British Army and the dual rank system of regimental and, and army rank. But then you throw in the British officers serving in the uh, Portuguese army in their rank, and they got promoted quite fast compared to the other army. And it did cause problems, but it was resolved. Wellington found a way to manage it. And Madden was the most uh, obvious one. What I find so curious about this, though, from Wellington's perspective, is Wellington is not the most senior, by any means, commander in the British Army during this period. And folks who aren't familiar with the period won't realise that there's this kind of issue that the British Army has and, and the commanders in Whitehall have that they can't send certain people out to Spain and Portugal to serve with the British Army because they're senior to Wellington they would normally supersede him. Um, now, if he's going to kind of adopt this system of whatever your rank is, you are senior, there's a big contradiction here in the form of Beresford, who is a marshal of the Portuguese army. So marshal outranking what's Wellington by this point, a lieutenant general? The, he was... This, I this think he became a, a field marshal in 1813. Exactly. Um, and and Beresford, I forget where, and this is shameful. It was, but it was March or April of 1809. Good question. I never looked at it, but I think it was part of the uh, the British said, well, then you're in charge. Hmm. Beresford, you could be you know, an eight-star general as far as we care, but you're still going to be subordinate to... Uh, and, I, you know, if... Beresford, if he didn't really want to be there and initially didn't want to go, he could have said he could resign, but he didn't. He was still in the army until 1820. And it was, you know, for him, it was a pretty sweet deal. I mean, he had uh, 40, 50,000 men under his command, direct command, and it was in command of all of the operations in the southern uh, part of Portugal for a while. 
And so I don't think he wanted to rock the boat, but that's another area I have no idea on why there weren't more uh, issues about it. Mm. I, I never really even thought about it at that point. And this was so, why I was so convinced when you said that, you know, this was going to be Wellington's way, that British Army, British government are paying for this, therefore that's going to be the point of seniority. How very curious. It's yeah. a perplexing point on which we are sadly at an end. Bob, I have loved this second part as much as I've loved the first part. Your book, In the Words of Wellington's Fighting Cocks, is out now. Folks, you know the rant by now. Not Amazon, please. Please go direct to the Pen and Sword website in order to support the lovely authors who come on here. I am unfortunately unable to pay them for their appearances because this podcast barely makes enough money as it is. Um, so they don't get a, an interviewee's fee, much though I would love to pay them. Um, so support them in a different way. Please go direct to the Pen and Sword website in order to buy this. Don't go to Amazon um, and enjoy what is a fascinating read. Bob, it has been a joy as ever. Do come back again sometime soon. And thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me to be on. Uh, hopefully this is not the last uh, episode and you know, there'll be many uh, more in the future. Stay safe, you know, stay healthy and stay in touch. And there will be an announcement on whether or not this is the last Napoleonist episode in just a few seconds time. Before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on um, pen and sword books, which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show all the way through to voting rights shout outs in episodes and even one-to-one -one meetings with me if a regular subscription isn't your thing which believe me i completely understand you can leave one-off tips via ko-fi again the link is in the description and all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line and i have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be uh, a really engaging, exciting project if I can bring the money together to make it happen. A big thank you as ever to my Emperor-level patrons Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Led Campbell, my Marshall patrons Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons John Haynes, Gur Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin and Michael Guest, my Mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron Noah Fink, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tapner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge and Stephen Coulson. Hello folks, so for that announcement that you've been very patiently waiting for, well if you follow me on Twitter then you'll know that actually it's not that big announcement anymore, it is old news. I am very humbled and privileged to say that 
I did in fact pass my PhD Viva uh, on Wednesday of this week and so technically I am now Dr White which believe me is taking a huge amount of getting used to. I just want to take a moment to thank oh, so many people who've made that process happen, not least my supervisors, uh, Dr Julie Gammon, uh, Professor Chris Wargar and Professor David Brown at Southampton University. Um, I'm particularly indebted to the Special Collections Department and Dr Karen Robson who runs that department um, because they were the people who invested in me and literally funded me through the first three years of that PhD process and if it hadn't been for that funding then I would never have embarked on the PhD to be sitting here now. I also want to say a really big thanks to three very dear friends of mine who collectively convinced me that I had what it took to do the PhD. Charles Esdale, Ed Koss and Rory Muir. It's quite a disconcerting experience when you've got three giants of the Napoleonic period and Napoleonic scholarship kind of rooting for you and telling you that you have got the, the, the tools in your arsenal to go ahead and actually make a convincing PhD project. And as, if it hadn't been for them, I would never have dared to dream. Um, so a, a massive, massive thank you to them. I also want to say a big thank you to everybody on Napoleonic Twitter. There are too many people out there to name. Um, but if you're listening and you're one of those, you know exactly who you are. And also I want to say a big thank you to you guys, the people who listen to this podcast. Sure, the, the podcast isn't an integral part of, of the PhD and what I've done, but it has still been an important part of my life and something that's kept me going through some pretty challenging periods of, of doubt um, in, in recent times. The, the horizon still looks kind of fuzzy. I don't know what the future holds. Um, there's certainly no job security now I've got the PhD, but it has been a joy to podcast for you guys, and I'm sure it kind of goes without saying that having passed, the Napoleon Assist will continue. I will be back very soon, but until then, I am Dr. Don't You Know, Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.